Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Justin. And I'm Ian. And we'll be your host for today's episode, Starting Fresh. Today we sit down with our guest by our sovereign to talk about the brightest things we know, the bar guest, Armor Astir, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Welcome, Briar. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Briar, how long have you been a designer in the RPG space? It's kind of blurry. Game design has always been the basically the only kind of career I ever saw for myself. Mm-hmm. I guess while I tooled around with little bits and pieces a long time ago, I'd say during university was probably where I got started doing actual, like my own products. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you do game design outside of the TTRPG space as well? Uh, yes, my day job is video game design. Oh, I actually was not familiar with that. What games might people know you from? Uh, people would know me from Hat in Time, the 3D platform that came out a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar with that game. That was my first game design job, technically. What did you do? Well, I started off doing like kind of design documents, so not really that far off from tabletop design in a lot of ways. How so? Uh, there's a lot of just like pitching how mechanics are going to work. And obviously they get transitioned over to like a programming side rather than just staying text. But it's a lot of similar skills, I think. Yeah, I, I've also done dabbling in the video game space and there's a lot of transferable skills. Well, that's exciting for me to hear. <laughs> As someone who might one day be interested in, in transferring in the other direction. We'll see. But I would love to talk a little bit about some of your non-Forge in the Dark games briefly before we get into the brightest things we know. Sure. You have a game, is it right to say it's probably one of your biggest TTRPG projects is Armor Astir? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I know that they're going to be doing a series on Friends of the Table, a really popular actual play podcast of Armor Astir. Would you like to give us a little pitch of Armor Astir and why, what's so special about it? Sure. Armor is a it is a Powered by the Apocalypse game. You know, not usually the, the staple here, but... If I was going to sum it up really quickly, I guess I would just read out my my big summary paragraph right at the beginning of the game. Armorster Advent is a high fantasy role-playing game about striking back against an authority that seeks to control you. It is a game of rival pilots clashing in steel-clad stars, of soldiers holding their own against their odds, spies and diplomats twisting the world to their ends. It is not a game of careful preparation or pleasant truces. It's hard to change the world without taking a risk. Uh, it is a fantasy mech game, uh, very styled on... You know, Gundam, uh, a few, like, series of Gundam in particular, uh, Escaflone, mm-hmm. a lot of the, like, mech staples. And with that game, I've I've done a little bit of a read-through of it. You seem to have a similar philosophy as far as, we'll talk a little bit about the brightest things momentarily, but in terms of, it feels like you kind of like to start fresh with the mechanics, even of systems that people are starting to get familiar with or or that have been well explored. Is there a reason for that? Is it just something you're drawn to do to kind of like break down the mechanics a bit and rebuild them? I would say to some degree, I think identifying the like iconic parts of a system and like just pulling them out does a lot to kind of focus you on your design and actually make sure that the parts you're keeping are parts that, you know, mesh well with the genre that you're trying to establish. Realistically speaking, I think I just like taking things apart and putting my own things back in. I can identify with that. I know that um, whenever I first saw Blades in the Dark, my first instinct was like, how can I break this up? And like, how can I break it down into little pieces to better understand it? You know, I ran a campaign, but I think alongside that, I was also hacking the game already. For a prototype of Mothlight, actually, my own RPG, 
Ian, do you identify with this at all? Do you feel like you need to break things to pieces to, to kind of understand it a little bit? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I've been chopping up Blades since the second session that I played of it. They were already making tweaks and cutting the stuff out and adding stuff back in. Yeah, so for my own games, I, I definitely will just chop everything out that I don't need and just bring in the parts that I need. Is that uh, the approach you take, Briar? Or do you start with Blades and then modify that? Or do you start from scratch and then pull in the parts you need? Uh, with Blades, at least, I definitely started with Blades and then sort of mm -hmm. identified the parts I don't think I wanted to keep and just took those out. With Blades, I've at least had kind of a little bit more perspective in that I've played Blades and I've played other Forge in the Dark games. <laughs> with Armorister, it was a lot more speculative. This was like back in 2017. Yeah. I had played basically very little myself other than like D&D. &D, and it was a lot of guesswork. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I think that PBTA, though, that's a good system to start with, right? Absolutely. Because, it, yeah, it, it's a very understandable system once you start exploring the building blocks. And especially for someone who already has experience with writing, you can do a lot with just like that narrative element. Tell me, what was your first experience with Blades in the Dark? You mentioned you were a player. Oh, I think technically my first experience will have been Friends at the Table. I will have been the Blades in the Dark season uh -huh. they did, Marielda. I, it's a good few years back at this point now, I think. Mm -hmm. But since then, I've had my own experiences, mostly one-shots, just either playing in or running it for my friends. And also, like, other Forge in the Dark games, playing them makes it a lot easier to really identify parts of that system that you, like, personally chafe with, I think. Yeah, I, I really love the Marielda season, and it's interesting as an example for this topic in particular, starting fresh, because they used the rules as written, but it really doesn't feel <laughs> like Duskfall at all. And, and it really feels like they're, they made it feel like their own thing. So they did not start fresh, but they really did make it their own game just with the setting, which I find intriguing. Yeah, there's absolutely a degree to which, like, the setting is as much of the mechanics of a game as anything else, right? It comes with a lot of narrative assumptions about, like, what is going to be done, who is going to be doing it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, I first got interested in your Forge in the Dark designs whenever you participated in the Unusual Suspects Jam, which, uh, thank you very much, because your playbook was great. And I, I think it's still one of the more popular playbooks from the jam. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? The bar guest? What was your inspiration for this demon dog that you did? So I think a lot of the inspiration just comes down to like being interested in other like folklore, especially English folklore, which bar guests and like hellhounds are pretty common. Mm -hmm. I ran a Monster of the Week game not so long ago for a bunch of my work colleagues and a bar guest was sort of the thing they had to deal with in that. I think a lot of it also comes down to... Friends at the Table again. Yeah. Back when Bluff City was just starting up, it was a short arc called A Bowling Alley, A Boxer, and A Bird. And obviously I don't want to spoil that for anyone who hasn't heard of it, but there is a, <laughs> an animal that causes some problems in those episodes. And that's always stuck with me. On the Discord, we've we've talked a lot about the various playbooks. And I know we did an episode of the podcast where we talked about a bunch of the entries. And one of the things that was explored in that was how the bar guest is, is really flexible. Like it could be a literal pet, like you could maybe even play the, the hunter's pet if that's what you wanted to do. Or you could be this force of nature, this monster, you know, monstrous group. Or you could be more of a were creature if you wanted to. I, I like that uh, the writing doesn't preclude any of that and the design as well. Yeah, I think a lot of my approach to writing playbooks and that kind of thing is giving yourself, you know, a very strong concept to work through, getting like some of your initial moves in, you know, as, as closely anchored to that concept as possible, 
and then just sort of letting yourself drift towards the edges a little bit. I think my favorite suggestion out of that discussion was that you could play the Scooby-Doo to a mystery-solving gang. <laughs> the Bargast, which... <laughs> be an interesting take. <laughs> oh my gosh, I forgot that, but that... Yes, I loved that suggestion. So, as of this recording, people might have seen the first actual play of this already, but our next actual play series is of Unusual Suspects playbooks. And it has a nautical theme, so the bar guest was not at the top of that list, unfortunately. <laughs> but I do love that idea. Now that we have an idea of some of your design history, I think it, it might be a time to talk about this game that you've just embarked on, The Brightest Things We Know. Would you like to pitch us on that? I know there's a lot of game pitching going on, but man, you, you have a pretty good pedigree here. Brightest Things is a lot easier to, and a lot simpler to pitch than Armor Stair, I think. Uh-huh. It is basically my take on games like Destiny and Warframe, transmuting those into the Forge in the Dark system. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious, you know, as someone who's not a player of Destiny, but who is interested in the lore, it's, it's pretty clear what the inspiration is. And I also have some friends who are just like huge Warframe nerds, which, man, I've watched some interesting YouTube videos on that game. I'll say <laughs> that at least. Uh, what about Destiny and Warframe really fascinates you? And why, why did you want to choose Forge in the Dark as the system to tackle that? I think part of it is just, you know, that kind of fantasy isn't there isn't like a big game in the Forge in the Dark space that tackles that really. Mm -hmm. There is Scum and Villainy, but Scum and Villainy is a lot closer to Blades in that it's you know kind of casting you in the role of uh, like scoundrels and that kind of like lower level of power. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to take Forge in the Dark, which is a system that is often you know casting you as characters like that, and just throw it into the much deeper end of the pool as far as power goes. I think. On my read through, one thing I noticed is it's pretty explicit that you are immortal. So as far as just to demonstrate the power level that we're talking about, like you cannot easily die outside of plot mechanics. Is that correct? More or less, yes. Yeah. You know, if you end up in sort of a terrible situation where everyone in the everyone in the party is kind of dead, it could probably go bad for you, but there is a mechanic then that just lets you come back from that anyway. So basically you can't die unless everyone agrees, okay, we're just going to die actually. <laughs> yeah. And yet there is a still a strong retirement aspect. There's, you know, the light can fade from you, I suppose, or, or your, your benefactor can, can remove it. Burnout. Yeah, so a, a lot of Forge in the Dark games keep that system from Blades, right? Where you, you have scars or traits or whatever it is that you're gaining as you spend all of your stress. And in a lot of games that's framed as, oh, this is too dangerous or too stressful for you to do anymore, so you have to stop. I didn't super like that for the kinds of characters you are in Brightest Things We Know. Mm-hmm. So in Brightest Things, we know that mechanic is framed less around things that are like being given to you, like scars. It is you regaining memories from a long-gone past life. And once you have too many of those, you are less forced to retire in that, you know, this is too dangerous for you now. You are forced to retire in that you just remember too much of who you used to be, and it's too hard for you to focus on this anymore. And that seems like a great way to, to spin a former character out into an NPC, like a like an Anna Bray sort of situation, where somebody remembers that they used to be someone important, and now they can maybe give the players more insight into that, or, or send them out on quests, that sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. There is a degree to which that system is intentionally written for you to take characters who have burnt out and go play them in something else. There is a Songs of the Dust game that I am in right now, where one of our NPCs is a ex-star. Oh, that's really cool. Shout out to my good friend Remy, who is jamming that campaign for us. Yeah, I've been watching Songs for the Dusk. It plays in a 
I don't necessarily love the term hope punk, but like people have put both Songs for the Dusk and Mothlight in that category before. And, and I'm interested in games that are taking a more hopeful kind of a look to the Blades formula, for sure. Yeah, Songs for the Dusk is definitely one of my larger inspirations, like from other Forge in the Dark games as far as this game goes. Yeah, the community element, I can see from my reading of uh, The Brightest Things We Know, like the community element, which is really strong in Songs for the Dusk, I can see kind of extrapolated into your downtime and, and such from what from what I've seen so far. Speaking of which, you do a thing in your book, which I appreciate, especially for like an alpha build or a beta build, where you have material in here that is really intriguing. And then when it comes to forging the dark elements in the beginning of the book, you just explain that this is a hack of Blades in the Dark and look to the SRD for all this big stuff. Uh, I think that's a wise decision because it can be daunting to rewrite all that. And I wonder if you have any advice for designers who are kind of daunted by just all the, like reproducing all of the basics again or like reimagining all of the mechanics of Forge in the Dark systems. Yeah, I think just like letting yourself kind of only focus on the stuff that you're changing is probably like the easiest way to do it. Mm -hmm. The SRD exists for a reason. You know, this is content that people can refer back to, even if not to the SRD, to other books they probably already have. And the only thing like repeating all of that stuff does is make your document longer and more convoluted. Right. I saw also that in a lot of the playbooks, at least during the alpha, you've got just look in a different Forged in the Dark game and take one of their special abilities uh, that, that fits the theme. And I'm like, yeah, actually, that's a, that's a great thing to do while you don't have a big list for yourself. Yeah, that's absolutely a, a degree to which these kinds of games are not like exchangeable. Obviously, you can't just take a playbook out of this and go play it in a different Forged in the Dark game. Mm -hmm. But there is a lot of degrees to which moves can be moved around. I think as far as placeholders go, that's not the worst way to do it. Those are all replaced now, unfortunately, except for one, which I have kept intentionally on the altar playbook. <laughs> oh, you mean like a like a ability that's just go get one from another book? Absolutely, yes. Is that's beautiful. I love that. God, I, I think more Forging that games need to do that, and then they can be canonically connected to one another. <laughs> um, <laughs> excellent. When you started with the brightest things you know. As you mentioned, you know, you, you chose what you actually wanted to keep and started from there. What what did you want to focus on? What were the first things they were like, this has to stay or this has to change? I think the harm was definitely the first thing that got ripped out, right? Mm -hmm. And this is actually kind of detached from the things I don't like about harm today because I wrote the harm rules for Brightest Things We Know back in 2018. Mm. I had a very like small list of ideas and stuff for this game way back then, which I just didn't touch for like two years. Uh, and even there, like harm is split out just into the three categories like it is now, which comes directly from Destiny, right? There is no mm -hmm. point in Destiny where you are taking certain levels of harm. Minus one deed all of your actions doesn't really fit the, uh, the tone, yeah. Yeah, demigods don't take minus one deed to their actions. <laughs> No, they don't. But yeah, I just wanted to kind of capture the feeling of playing Destiny and either being at full health and everything is fine, you're being shot at and having a bad situation, or you're dead and waiting for someone to pick you up. And I just don't think harm mapped to that very well. My current dislike of harm comes down to just playing Forge in the Dark games and taking a level of one harm and not thinking too much about this. And then yes, immediately remembering, oh no, I have minus one D on everything now. This, this kind of sucks. This is a frequent dilemma amongst Forge in the Dark designers where many people have the same feeling and, and it can be surprisingly hard to take out or to change just in terms of like a mental space because it requires reimagining. I feel like 
in a year, whenever there's a bunch of examples that people can pick and choose from of what is working in in place of harm, perhaps such as the brightest things we know, <laughs> this question will be a little easier Absolutely. on future designers. Yeah, I, I yep. think it's like an easy thing to not necessarily to fix, but to tweak more to uh -huh. sort of a smoother thing. You don't even yeah. have to go as like weird with it as I have done. You could just make level one harm not do anything and remove armor. God, yes. Remove armor. That is a suggestion I would have to a lot of folks. Armor can be not for your game, Ian, because armor is great yeah. in your game. <laughs> but for, for a lot of games, like reduce those things that make it just a little more complicated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that are not adding a whole lot per se. Like in Blade, some of the tricks that you can do with armor are great, but you don't need them to have a really interesting play experience. It's interesting that in a game that's focused largely a lot on combat, that that was a decision you chose to make. Is play in The Brightest Things We Know intended to be largely about combat? Are there other kinds of missions people will go on? Yeah, you know, there is a full suite of actions there. I definitely expect people to, to use them. Mm -hmm. But I think as far as, you know, the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay goes, it is definitely more angled towards combat than a lot of other Forge in the Dark games. Mm -hmm. Partially because of that power level difference, right? Like, if you are in fights constantly in Blade, say, you are going to take those harms and it's going to just make it more difficult for you to fight any further. Whereas harm in Brightest Things We Know is intentionally very transitory. It's very easy to get rid of because you're going to keep moving and keep fighting. Ian, do you have any feelings on games about combat and where you can still find the social element in them, since you wrote a game that's largely about combat as well? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mm -hmm. think it, it is important, especially in designing the missions, that you sort of can, can merge those elements. And I think the rumor system in Brightest Things We Know does that really nicely how you, you slot the rumors in. Maybe we should go into that in a little more detail, but basically the way that you build up the missions has a nice level of, okay, these are people that you could potentially work with. These are enemies that you could work against. And so there's all these these entities that you can talk to to potentially help you in achieving your mission objective. Sure, yeah, I can go into that. A lot of the rumor stuff comes at its core down to the fact that Brightest Things We Know doesn't have crew types or like a ship type skill and villainy. And the role those play in a lot of games is twofold, right? It's, you know, here is a bunch of moves and things that you have access to, but it's also signposting to your GM, like, this, these are the things we want to be focusing on, right? Yeah. You know, when you pick Hawkers in Blitz in the Dark, you are not telling your GM, hey, we want to go do an assassination first, right? And I know I wasn't going to have those in this game because of how, you know, much more streamlined what you are in this game is. So where a lot of that comes through instead is in the rumor system. And these are, you know, what they sound like. They are rumors that you pick out in downtime, which is the ship phase in, in this game. And you are going to take those and you slot them into little briefings. You know, they are kind of fill in the blank mission descriptions. And this lets people in the group kind of pick out what missions they want to do without it being just something the GM has to infer based on what crew type they picked. Yeah, I was very impressed with a lot of the random table elements that it's still, are still under construction, but I can tell are going to be really robust for creating these rumors and creating the missions and such. That's probably pretty important to create like a really interesting combat experience and and what have you in these kinds of games. But one thing I'm realizing, you know, we're talking about starting fresh, but one thing this game benefits from is a really strong origin point in games like Destiny and these other popular games that people have a relationship to. Can you talk about how that helps in the experience of like starting fresh whenever you have a lot of this 
pre-existing lore and social, you know, phenomena to a big social phenomena to kind of write on when designing your game? Sure. You mentioned the law there, and I think law stuff mm-hmm. comes through less. I try very specifically to like at least put new stuff into this game whereas mm-hmm. the world comes through. But I think having stuff you can draw on for just a general vibe really helps sell a product, right? Mm-hmm. People have an idea of what this thing is before they've even read it, and that does a lot of favors. It probably also, especially for Forge in the Dark game, helps with setting position and effect. Like when somebody says, I want to use Scour to cut through this this spaceship bulkhead, someone can think of their experience with Warframe or Destiny and think, hmm, is that probably going to be limited effect or is that going to be normal effect? Absolutely. It gives people expectations that can be met, right? Like people are familiar with these games, they know the kinds of situations and kind of things they want characters in that world to be able to do. So when they come to a game and can read like a move and know, oh, this is that thing that I've always wanted. Or here is that thing I love doing in this other game. Gosh, yeah. Realizing that you can do the thing you always wished you could do in the level that you've played a hundred times that you've never been able to do just because of the constraints of the game. That's that's a fun thought as far as position and effect. Yeah. Yeah, definitely just just even invoking Warframe in the description changes the my thinking of how you'd use the flow action, which is for jumping and moving. And normally I would say somebody probably has zero effect to jump to the top of a skyscraper with by just parkouring off of walls, but that's sort of a basic feature in Warframe, so. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of that is why I feel comfortable taking out things like armor, um, because you mm-hmm. are just like a different type of person, right? Right. The tier in this case, which I don't, I didn't see any references to tier. Nope. Uh, the tier is kind of standardized, and you don't really need those delineations because everyone is just a badass, and your enemies are, you know, ridiculous. So why delineate which is <laughs> what is a mook versus a boss whenever you can just do that narratively? You also have something that's really developed or, or that is obviously receiving a lot of attention in the design of this game is your downtime. Your downtime functions kind of uniquely compared to a lot of Blades downtimes. Would you like to talk about that a little bit and what went into your thinking on the hours system? Sure, yeah. So I find a lot of downtime in these kinds of games ends up being very leisurely, right? It is long sessions where people are sitting around picking out actions and things. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that really meshed with the fiction I wanted for what the life of this kind of character is like. So I wanted a system that much more emphasized, like, you are here very briefly and then you are back out again. And that's why rather than saying, oh, you have two actions, you know, pick from this list, whatever you want those actions to be, those scenes can be as long as you like. Uh, you have hours to spend. And all the actions either cost like a flat amount of those hours or you are spending like a variable amount to get a better result. My immediate thought whenever I read about that system was, this is really cool, and it would be that much harder to design. <laughs> have, <laughs> have you run into that at all, or have you found it to be easier than, than I would imagine? I mean, it, it's been fairly straightforward to me, right? Like, uh-huh. none, of the, none of the actions use more than three hours, and it's not that hard to sort of balance the benefits you're getting out of them for the time you're putting it in. Mm-hmm. For people considering who think this is a cool system and want to design one of their own, how do you weigh the priority of each action because there's there's a narrative conceit you know for a lot of games where it's like an action should take this long compared to another action but then there's also the balancing conceit of an action that costs fewer hours should maybe do less than one that costs more how do you balance those priorities a lot of it comes down to i think 
taking stock of which actions are going to be mod demanded by play, right? Mm -hmm. People are naturally going to pick up blights as they play, they are going to spend light as they play. So actions that get rid of those and clear those out so they're ready for the next strike need to be affordable, right? If you were playing blades and getting rid of stress costed you like all of your actions every time, that gets boring mechanically and also boring fictionally, right? Like you never get to do any of the other stuff. So I wanted to make sure people had room to like pick the, the less required things and spend time doing those instead. I think that's a good way to go. <laughs> I, I really like the concept, especially for the conceit of you're all traveling on a ship together or, or in like this headquarters, essentially. And it feels like you were going on missions every day, right? Is kind of the conceit, like every 24 hours, it's you, you clock in <laughs> and you go on your mission. Is that's kind of the conceit? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, stars don't need rest. So, <laughs> no, but they are in a strict twenty four seven schedule, which I <laughs> I find actually kind of comforting. It gives them some humanity, despite like the otherworldly nature of a lot of what they do. Uh, absolutely, and part of that I think comes through in the fact that the more memories you have, the less time you have in the ship actions phase, mm -hmm. because you are remembering that you used to be a person and kind of makes it hard to focus on doing other things. Right. And I like how the Crow playbook, which is one that you would probably play as more like a Tinker kind of character, can get extra hours to, to work on their projects without setting them too far behind the, uh, the other playbooks. Absolutely, yeah. Because playbooks in this game are a lot more minimized, uh, they are four actions as opposed to eight, I think, in standard Blade. Twelve. Oh, 12, damn. Yeah, because they are so much smaller, for the most part, in most of the playbooks, I don't really devote any of the actions towards downtime stuff, but that kind of carves out a nice space for the crow to have a lot to play around with in that space. And the hours system that you have does, I imagine, leave a lot of flexibility in terms of additions to the game, in terms of abilities that can adjust the hours you use without it feeling like such a penalty to like lose out on a whole downtime action you know, in Blades or to gain a whole downtime action in the same sense. You mentioned that as you start to learn more about your former life, you spend more time researching it and you lose out on some of that recovery time that you would normally have. What is the intention behind like having this slight spiral, potentially, where the more you learn about yourself, the quicker you descend into your old life? Yeah, so in a lot of Forge and the Dark games, retirement is generally something you want to avoid, right? You know, you want to keep playing that character, you want to stay in that campaign. Mm -hmm. Brightest Things We Know is intended to be a little bit different to that, I think. You are, you know, you're, it is designed in such a way that these stars are going to burn out. And there is a lot you can do to do that faster or a little bit slower, but it's going to happen probably. It is designed to make it hard to not happen to you. What's your design intent behind that? Because that's definitely something that, that I've latched onto for my game. So I'm just wondering how you came to that. I mean, it ties into the fact that you're like recovering memories of this old life, right? You are spiraling towards knowing who you were rather than, you know, a, a negative thing, like having to like, stop doing this thing you like doing. It is a lot more about like self-discovery in that way. You say stop doing this thing you like doing. And I, I want to explore that because you are these larger than life warriors fighting back <laughs> a corruption the conceit that that is something that is very fun to do i i love that because that kind of is in line with the player experience of the video game 
but maybe not so much with the lore experience. So why choose to kind of go that route? Why choose to emphasize the kind of player experience in, in that regard? I would say it's about kind of the clash between the role and the identity of a star and whoever it is you used to be, right? Mm-hmm. It's having these two things inside of you and knowing that to some degree, both of them are you. I like that. One of the reasons I like Forge in the Dark as a system and NPBTA too is it really embraces that meta element. The, the player and the character experiences are equally important and equally touched upon by the mechanics. So I like I like that as an answer that you want to invoke both with your roles for the brightest things we know. So another element that's very key to uh, that kind of game is loot. And I see you've got a, a pretty interesting loot mechanic in your game. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure, yeah. So I'm sure one of the first things that people notice when they look at playbooks for this game is that there is absolutely no gear on them. Mm-hmm. That was also one of the first things that I tore out. It makes so much more space on a character sheet if you don't <laughs> have gear there. Really, it does. But yeah, I, I thought about games like Destiny and Warframe, and you are not so much bringing like tools and gear along with you in those, right? When you have something you need to use, it is a, a much bigger deal than spending long gear and just pulling something out of your pocket. So I decided to take that, take the familiar like marking boxes off that people know from other version of games, and try and use it to better replicate like the core of what items are in those games, which is picking them up off the floor, taking them home with you. I'm more specifically on the Destiny side, taking them to someone who will tell you what's inside of them. Do you feel like people playing this game are likely to to benefit from that one thing that's really good about D&D, where you're, the loot you find kind of changes your character a little bit, or your like character arc, and, and how you feel about them? Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people will you know identify like what kinds of gear they want, and they can chase after those to some degree. I think that's not a thing that happens in a lot of, especially tabletop games in the indie side of things, right? No. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. We've moved away generally from a lot of like, especially in the Forge in the Dark situation where it's, you know, uh, this thing or it's a find this thing. Yeah. Quantum, quantum gear. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to bring back very specific items and objects in the world. And you bring in uh, one of my favorite parts of Destiny, which is having cool little lore quotes on on each piece of gear, <laughs> which that's a very fun way to, to build out the setting. Yeah, I absolutely couldn't resist adding those in. That was a good decision. It kind of makes me want to, instead of the explainer text in all of the playbook moves that I do, it almost makes me want to just like <laughs> try to convey that in a lore quote somehow. But I love that each piece of gear is kind of its own ability, but it's also a little bit more than that. What is what is your kind of goal for what, what place in the in the character will your gear take? Because gear can be, I imagine, changed out. It can probably be uh, modified, or you can get it upgraded. Are you hoping that whenever someone you know finds the piece of gear that is like theirs, or that will be theirs, that they stick with it, or is the idea that they are constantly changing gear, like in a lot of these games? I think there will be to some degree. You know, they they have these things. They know. Oh, if I'm going on a strike against this faction, like I have this piece of gear that is particularly useful against them. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that people will find ones they want to stick with? A lot of the time that went into making the playbooks lighter weight was knowing that I'm going to have moves coming from other sources like these. So I wanted to make sure they felt like impactful. I think it works. I think people have played around with gear as special abilities before, but I don't know that any. I haven't quite seen someone go the step of doing that and taking out like every other piece of gear 
in, in the playbook, <laughs> which to me is is choice because, yeah, you want that light playbook feel. This will give you that. That's for sure. There's also the option that you have here where you can you don't have to really bounce these moves because these these abilities because they're part of an item, you know, that can be it can be broken. It can be changed out. It can be you could wait to give them to the player until the right moment when they're ready, you know, the moment they're ready. How do you imagine players finding this stuff? Is is it like reward for a really difficult boss fight or or something else? Yeah, so for the most part, they are just picked up through play, right? I think mm-hmm. a lot of the fun of games like Destiny is taking home like engrams and then just decrypting a whole bunch at the same time and <laughs> seeing what's in there for you. Uh-huh. Yep. So yeah, a lot of that ties into just the successes on rolls. I think you can you can immediately mark loot and just take something if you want from whatever that roll was. Or you can save all of that space and just wait for the end of the strike and get a, a chance at a slightly better reward. Yeah, I really like the the weapon system and how it invokes destiny, and particularly coming back to the idea of of having tactical uh, involved combat. I love the armor barriers and regeneration system with secondaries, where certain players will have the right weapon to beat an enemy, and that's the only one that works against them. But then also how those weapons then have like a limiting factor that requires you to get yourself in the right position. I imagine that leads to a lot of really cool combat scenes. Yeah, a big focus with that kind of thing was, you know, how do I bring in like a three-tiered weapon system to forge in the dark, <laughs> have all of those tiers feel like they have a, a unique purpose without also making it vastly like complicated compared to everything else. <laughs> and I think like a lot of that came down to just giving them identities that were unique, but without like making there be too much rules involved in that. How do you avoid the situation in, in in the example Ian gave where no one has the right piece of gear? Well, then you just have to find a different way around it, don't you? Hmm, I see. <laughs> it's the story games for a reason. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's actually something I'm fascinated on that you just touched on. I, I was actually talking with Ian about it before the episode of invoking elements that we often consider unique to video games or board games and adapting them to tabletop games and vice versa. So there very well could be a situation in a video game where you don't have the right piece of equipment. But in a story game, that's rare because we can usually figure a way around it. Do you think about that a lot Uh, as someone who's done video game design and what have you? Do you think about a lot about how different ways of thinking between platforms and between genres can inform one another or add depth to one another yeah you know i'm a a big proponent of the luxury of tabletop games is that Mm -hmm. you don't have to follow the rules you know there's always things you can bend and break there's always new things you can bring in to like make things work the way you need them to do but i do think there is a lot that they can learn from video games yeah obviously the the upside to video games is that there is a lot of math and stuff there that can be handled Mm -hmm. far, far easier than ever at your table but there's also a lot of games that are very simple and do a lot of things. Like Into the Breach is a big one, I think. God, I love that game. Uh, mm-hmm. it, Sorry. It stuns <laughs> me that Into the Breach hasn't been like embraced much more in like the tactical tabletop sort of area. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really, mm-hmm. truly. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think you can get a lot out of just looking at games you like, looking at things mm-hmm. that work for that game and figuring out how they can be done at a table instead. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it is a thing right now, people adapting video games to the tabletop space uh, and what have you. And and RPGs as well are breaking into the, the tabletop board game space a little bit more recently. And I like to see, personally, I'm very interested in that happening to tabletop games as well, where you have these touchstones of video games, and that that's common. But elements of how those games are built can also help to inform tabletop games to give them a really unique feel like your loot system and what have you do you have any other examples of where designing for or or just being inspired by video games or board games has has really helped uh make something feel fresh in a tabletop design or vice versa i think part of this is something i evoke a little bit in the actions Mm -hmm. as things we know right Mm-hmm. Video games get a lot of criticism for maybe having too few verbs. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly just, you know, kill, uh, shoot, that kind of thing. Yeah, ever since the adventure point-and-click game went by the wayside, not enough verbs <laughs> in your video <laughs> <But> I, games. <laughs> I think there is some merit to like taking a look at the verbs that you're giving people and making sure, you know, there isn't a lot of crossover between those, making sure they are as independently like, defined and strong as you can. Mm-hmm. For sure. For people who aren't familiar with the game, like a lot of Blades games have, gosh, how much is it? It's 12 actions, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I did trim that down to nine for the brightest things we know. Stripped three right out of that. I know that both Warframe and Destiny as games have a strong focus on lore, but also they have a communities that are really into not quite role playing, though I guess in Warframe there is an element of that, but like bringing kind of like role playing elements you might see normally in like an MMO, maybe on an RP server or something into them. And there's a lot of fan investiture in the fiction. Is that something that attracted you to those two games as fodder for a TTRPG? Not so much, right? I think <laughs> those are both games where I was involved in them, mm. especially on the Warframe side from way earlier in their life cycle, right? Mm-hmm. I started playing Warframe long before most of the lore that is in the game was implemented. I picked up Destiny sort of on launch. So while like, you know, it is interesting to see the way those worlds have developed and communities have picked that stuff out, I don't think it was much in my mind as far as the lore in this game goes. Mm-hmm. But like the way Destiny deploys it has definitely become something that you know has made itself part of brightest things we know. Do you have any Forge in the Dark inspirations that have been really touching upon your design lately, be it for the brightest things you know or or anything else? You mentioned uh, Songs for the Dusk. I'd be happy to hear about like what from Songs for the Dusk you, you've really enjoyed. Uh, we ha- we don't, haven't had Riley on yet to talk about it, but I would love to. Yeah, Songs for the Dusk has definitely been a, a big inspiration as far as another Forge in the Dark game that is a lot more like hopeful and positive goes. Yeah, I think Songs has also done a lot of like stripping away certain parts of the Forge in the Dark staples that were very helpful to be thinking about that stuff originally. Mm-hmm. And Forging That Out games writ large, just very helpful in playing them and figuring out which parts of that system that are used in a lot of hacks don't really mesh with me and I know wouldn't work for this system. Another one I was wondering about is the uh, the glory mechanic, which uh, in the version out on Itch isn't developed too much, but I was wondering if that was inspired from something or more of just a, a replacement mechanic. Yeah, it's more of a replacement, I think. That's one of the elements that are a little bit underdeveloped, a little bit underbaked at the minute. But that is me taking sort of heat from original Blaze in the Dark, which was mostly tied to entanglements, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Another thing that doesn't exist in this game. I'm just flipping it. I wanted it to be something you care about getting rather than something you try to avoid, uh, which fit more with, you know, what your characters are in this game, right? You are demigods. <laughs> you are not like getting in trouble with the authorities very much. Right. 
But like building a building a legend and building up glory is definitely something that fits more with that. I think uh, one of the things I have really enjoyed the most about reading through the doc that you have out now is in the lightness of the character sheets and the the way that you've woven a lot of fiction into them. I imagine having more space <laughs> to to include that is helpful. But also how you you present this format for the characters for each character sheet and then you kind of break it with every playbook by having these playbook specific mechanics that really make everyone feel different. That seems like a fun thing to design for, but it also seems potentially really complicated to think about. Do you do you enjoy thinking through like how to make these playbooks feel really different from one another? And what's your process for that? Like, how do you know if you've hit the right element there? Absolutely. It's something I enjoy. This is something I like got a lot of experience with making the playbooks for Armor Stir, mm-hmm. you know, which is drawing on like a lineage of PBTA games where the playbooks tend to be a lot more defined, a lot more specific. Right. I know a broad complaint a lot of people have of Blades in the Dark games, well, Blades, but also like Forge in the Dark games more broadly, is that the playbooks like don't really feel too unique, right? They are a collection of moves that any playbook can take if they want. Uh, they are action ratings that are in places, you know, you get four dots, you can put those anywhere. But aside from that, it's mostly just gear that makes them specific, right? So I knew I wanted to take the playbooks in this game and give them something that felt like only they could have, that felt specific and really, like, defined them. Uh, as far as my progress with that goes, uh, my process, I should say, uh, it mostly comes down to taking a, like, a close look at what the concept is for that playbook taking a look at the actions that they have and trying to give them something that like meshes well with that, right? That synchronizes well with the things you're going to be doing and either rewards you for doing that well or like helps you do that in specific ways. Yeah, I really like this particular example from Cetus, the shark. I think it, oh, what does it say here? Shark, 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 shark. <laughs> That's all the text. Oh, about. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought that was I thought that was final. Um, <laughs> I'll have to look forward to that and see what that turns into in the final game. Uh, <laughs> no, but to be serious, I actually do appreciate that element of it. It reminds me a lot of kind of the playbook design in Masks, which is something I'm really fond of in in terms of having each playbook, you know, work roughly the same, but have some really unique element to it that makes them play differently. And it's something I, I do appreciate about PBGA games over Forge in the Dark games and that, you know, each playbook is kind of its own self-contained thing. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Masks because that was actually one of the games that I looked at a lot while designing these specific playbook abilities. Mm-hmm. The ones that I'm thinking that I immediately come to mind whenever I'm reading through these, like Urban Shadows, Masks, There, there's a few others that uh, kind of take the playbooks and and really kind of make each one feel very unique through some kind of special mechanic. Passion de la Pastones also has something kind of like this, potentially. But that's something I could see happening in the Unusual Suspects Jam as well, was people deciding to really buck the more generic trend of a playbook and do something more PBTA-like in the sense of like, this is you know, the movie monster playbook, and it only really works as a movie monster. <laughs> and that's okay. I like seeing that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's okay for playbooks to be like very specific, mm-hmm. because there are going to be a whole bunch of them, right? People can pick and choose what they want. 
it's also like very easy to take more broad like genre staples and kind of wrap that in a more specific character which is generally how I feel a lot of the playbooks and brightest things have turned out. The other one that, that jumped to mind for me was Brinkwood. Have you read that? I'm not familiar with Brinkwood, no. They have a mask system. So you have a very light playbook. And then in Brinkwood, your power, actually, a lot of your special abilities and stuff comes from a mask that you choose to wear and is like spelled by the Fae or something. And so it's kind of like putting on a new costume every time you go out. And in some ways, there's actually are some parallels to the brightest things we know in terms of you have a powerful patron who in that game infuses you with magic and provides you with these masks as opposed to uh, the light and stuff. But definitely, definitely some, now that I think about it, yeah, I can see where you would see the connection there, Ian. Yeah, yeah. Each mask is unique too, like the stars, which I thought was an interesting change from the, uh, the Destiny lore. Because, you know, in Destiny, there's a whole bunch of Guardians, but in this, there's just these um, eight, I think, stars? Uh, there's nine in the club book, yes. Nine, yeah. Speaking of playbooks, we know that you like designing them. Are we going to expect more playbooks in the final game? Or what is it you're, you're focusing on now that you have this initial pitch? i say right now I'm mostly just focused on kind of filling out, making sure the tables, mm -hmm. strikes are filled out, filling out all of the faction stuff. I think that's the most underdeveloped right now. I want to make sure people have lots of examples for what it is they're doing and seeing out of strikes. Possibly more playbooks in the future. They happen to be very easy to make for this game because they're so trimmed down. But I think I have all of the like touchstones and aesthetics down that I want for release at least. And now that you've put a Forge and Dark game out there and gotten pretty far into designing one, do you have any special advice for people who can, are considering jumping into the Forge and Dark space themselves? Absolutely. I'd say, you know, do the same thing I have done, right? Take a look at the genre that you are trying to evoke or bring to the table. Take a look at the systems in Forge and the Dark and like figure out which of those ones don't match, right? Mm -hmm. And just like remove them. Consider what would fit better in that place. Consider how the thing you're putting in might work with the systems that you're keeping. And don't be afraid to like take things out. No one is going to come for you if you take certain things out of the game, right? Yeah, there are no idols of design. Uh, John isn't going to come for you if you <laughs> take, take <laughs> out something from the game that he really likes. It's okay. And what's more, I really personally, I really like seeing more of these games that are melding PBTA and Forge in the Dark design. I, I think that they help to kind of further expand the space and show people what is possible with the design. Not that games that hem close to the original are also great. I love them personally, but I really like seeing stuff like you have here in regards to the playbooks, in terms of the gear. All of that is really exciting to see, especially whenever it's so concise at this moment. <laughs> you know, whenever you pulled everything else out and you, you can just see like, what is your vision for how this game is different. So I, I would definitely recommend other designers do the same thing because I think it'll help you design your game too <laughs> in, in a more unique direction. Well, thank you, Briar, for joining us today and for all your insights into the brightest things we know. If our listeners want to learn more about you and your games, where can they go? They can find me on Twitter at Wegazel and they can find links to all the stuff I've made, stuff we talked about today mm -hmm. at wegazel.itch.io. And is there anything else you would like to plug? I've already talked at length about how great Songs of the Dusk is. I love that game a lot. People should go check that game out. Absolutely. It just got a new cover, right? Yes, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, go check out Songs for the Desk and maybe look forward to an interview with Riley sometime. I, I hope so. I hope to get in contact with them and, and schedule that at some point. 
Well, this has been a great episode of Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. Again, I'm Justin. And I'm Ian. Ian, tell me, as my co-host once again, do you have anything you would like to plug? I usually just plug my Twitter at Antifinity, because that's where I link out to Deathwish and anything else I'm working on. I've just got it hosted up as a Google Doc right now, since it's in beta. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, as for me, you can find the Mothlight beta on itch.io uh, at moth-lands.itch.io. And you can find uh, and follow me out on Twitter at Mothlands. Go check it out. Go check out the Unusual Suspects Jam. It's been a while, but there's lots of material there that's still great. And look forward to the actual play series featuring many of the Unusual Suspects playbooks uh, and the Drowners crew book. We're going to be a family of divers in Duskfall going after sunken treasure. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Jacob, for, for editing this podcast. And remember to take out that bit where I misspoke. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and remember, when it comes to design, we all begin our journey as hacks in the dark. Mm-hmm.